Saturday morning in January, it had been snowing for much of the week. This kind of week is less than occasional in Vancouver in the wintertime. Our rector's cupboard crew had headed out to Dudney, about an hour and a half away from the city, to the All Saints of North America Orthodox Monastery. We weren't sure just the night before if we would actually make it out. The snow had hit the area hard, and even as we drove through what was now its aftermath, seeing cars not yet removed from the ditch on the side of the road, the landscape had lit up. Now the scene had made that turn from the assault of a storm to the overwhelming beauty of a painting, like an artist had better than perfectly just changed how everything looks and then lit up the new picture. Our guest and host, David Goa, was standing at the top of the driveway, which had been shoveled out, but still had snow tracks. David, who has the long beard of an Orthodox bishop, was smoking a pipe. When he saw us, he smiled, came down the driveway, and commented on what a beautiful day it was. It was cold, but David is from Edmonton, the Canadian prairies. Each of us had met David at least a couple of times. He's presented talks for us, met with some of us individually as a spiritual friend, one who knows quite a lot more than any of us. Done with his pipe, he put it into a pipe pouch and zipped it up. We'd come to see David because we knew that he knows a great deal about the church, evangelical church. David also exudes a hospitality that is a call within his orthodox expression of Christian faith. You can feel that hospitality in meeting David and speaking with him. It's also brought him to Turkey and Syria and throughout the world, speaking on matters of the Christian faith and about how that faith is best lived, lived out in friendship with people of other faiths. David knows a great deal about Islam and the Muslim world. He knows this not as a Christian who seeks to argue against, but rather as a Christian who seeks to understand and love and live in community. We care about what we're doing with this little podcast, The Rector's Covered. We want it to make a difference for those of you who listen. Our intent is not to rail against our evangelical upbringing, but we are aware that that upbringing assumes a lot of things and gives one way of seeing the world. It's not the only way. It's not even the only Christian way. David Goa once remarked to us with a loving smile, my mission is to convert evangelicals to Jesus Christ. So we went up the driveway into the monastery and right into the study of Archbishop Lazar. The term used most often, a more familial, friendly to, uh, term, is Vladika. It means shepherd in Russian. In Vladika Lazar's study, we recorded this episode and tasted very nice rye and really great aquavit. As we were preparing to leave, David showed, us a, showed a couple of us the chapel at the monastery. As he did, there was a service happening, 5 p.m. Vesper for the Feast of Theophany the baptism of our Lord. And there were Archbishop Lazar and Bishop Varlam, older now. Vladika Varlam is ill. This is partially what occasioned David's visit to the monastery. He came to help out. Now these two men, alone, conducting a service. That's kind of how a monastery works. The monastics carry on with their services, welcoming guests, but often conducting services with only themselves in attendance. And the word goes out. Over the landscape, over the perfectly snow-covered rural hills. Enjoy this episode. You may want to look up the definition of a word or two, but it will be worth it. Moving ahead, hopefully, will no doubt include reaching back to the wealth of understanding of those who have come before. People like Archbishop Lazar, Bishop Varlam, and Vladika David. The Orthodox expression of faith is before evangelicalism, before Protestantism, before Catholicism even. And in it, there are some notes and thoughts that will help us as we move forward. 
in order to see our way out of some of our myopic understanding in the West, we'll gain much by looking to the East, to Orthodox understanding, and how things like salvation, judgment, and the stranger were understood long before we came around. You might want to listen a couple of times or more to this episode. David speaks deliberately, even slowly at times, but it can still be something to keep up to. Blessings on you and those you love. In 1874, the British government passed a series of laws called the Regulation of Public Worship. A lot of people cared an awful lot about church back then. True. On one side, people wanted more ritual and ceremony. On the other side, they wanted mostly none. In the midst of the battle, one minister, a rector in London at a church called St. George in the East, had stopped a practice whereby people who volunteered in church services could avail themselves of liquor from the rector's cupboard before and after the service. The Reverend King closed the cupboard. We have opened it again. Welcome to the rector's cupboard. Order! So welcome to the rector's cupboard. We're now in 2020. This is our first recording of, is it the new decade? No. Some people say yes, and Ken says no, so we're going to say yes. <laughs> it's the new decade, and this is Series 2, Episode 1 of Rector's Cupboard, and we're glad you're listening. Uh, we're here welcoming, or, or actually he's welcoming us, uh, David Goa, and we'll introduce him properly later. But here with me uh, this afternoon right now, just to talk for a few minutes before we introduce David and do our Rector's Cupboard tasting for this afternoon, we have Allison Williams. Hello. And Amanda Mina. Hello. Welcome. You guys, uh, I thought we could talk for a few minutes about this article that has been, well, that it is in the current issue of The Atlantic magazine. And uh, it's an article on, well, it's called The Christian Withdrawal Experiment. It talks about a community in Kansas. Am I getting that right? Yes. Thank mm-hmm. you. In Kansas, uh, we're a community that the article seems to say it's a lot of young families at this point, and it's growing like crazy, and that they kind of can't keep up. True. Am I getting? Yeah, it seems to be. They talk about how the principal of the the Catholic school there every summer is having to figure out how to deal with the increases in enrollment, and they're running like eight services, eight masses, and they're still like filled to capacity. And the prices for the real estate there—it's so desirable—is that the prices don't they rival like big cities in a small town in 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 a small town in Kansas. So, what is it um, that is attractive? about this place that you could you guys have read the article you get a sense of it people are certain people are wanting to go there you just said that why well i mean it mentions in the article that for for a lot of people they they're wanting to go because they can be with people that they feel they are understood by and that understand them they they say that they're concerned about being considered bigots by co-workers and they're concerned about what their children will be exposed to. And so they, they seem to have this mentality that if they are all the same, then their kids are going to be receiving the same doctrine. They'll have the same kind of, I guess, basic sets of rules, no matter whose house their, their kids might be visiting. So it, it's called the Society of St. Pius X. I mean, there's a lot of Catholic communities that, that have Saint, the St. Saint Pius name. But to kind of build on what Allison was just saying... Uh, Here's the quote that I pulled out that speaks directly to that. When they lived in other places, many SSPX, Society of St. Pius X, families felt isolated by their faith, keenly aware that their theological convictions were out of step with America's evolving cultural sensibilities. 
uh, particularly on issues such as gay marriage and abortion. So there's something kind of cultural, political to this experiment as well. Uh, they were wary of being labeled bigots. This is what Allison said by co-workers and friends. Uh, and I was interested in, and they talk about how, you know, they want to make sure their kids aren't watching violent shows or something mm-hmm. when they go to a friend's house and they can be assured of that there. But the end of that little section says it's someone from the community, I think a young woman, speaking, saying, we can't keep things out that we'd like to keep out completely, it, you know, in other places. Uh, Rutledge said, but the environment in St. Mary's is, quote, as conducive as possible for our children to save their souls. Uh, I was thinking to myself, and I'm sure maybe you did too, what what might she have meant there by, like, this, this, this withdrawal, it has some kind of implication that their souls will be saved because of this. Well, I mean, the the overarching sort of emotion that I that I picked up on was there, there's a lot of fear, and it seems that their motivation to, like, they're trying to protect themselves from, from like, what their reputations might be considered by their coworkers or their friends. They're trying to protect their children and their exposure to sinful things. They're trying to protect what they view as, like, a way of life that is not in step with culture anymore. And there, there's a lot of fear. And control. Are you on? I don't know. I don't hear. It feels like um, also that regaining of control, right? And you kind of touched on it in um, what I allow my children to see or what they're exposed to, and I can't control what my children are seeing, or even they're fearful, again, like Allison said, of them being exposed to pornography or those things. And so it's it's fear-based but also control-based, I feel. Um, And also kind of a hearkening back to, quote-unquote, the good old days when... Mm. um, there is a different type of family, if you will. Is like, yeah, I mean, my question to you, Amanda, would be what is it that endangers your soul? I mean, they're saying it's these kinds of things you said. You have had, I mean, you grew up in a, a church culture yourself, more mm-hmm. Presbyterian for you, right? Yeah. If you were kind of describing that, what was, what was it that endangered your soul? Simply being exposed to it. Simply if you see it, then mm-hmm. you could fall down at the slippery slope. Right, um, this idea that as soon as you're exposed to it, then you will identify with it, or you'll mm, maybe you'll like it, um, and continue to be exposed to it and not rail against it. So, what is it about the withdrawal that is, like I, I mean, my natural inclination is clearly not not this, not this sense of withdrawal. That if particularly if we're speaking about Christian faith, and for them that's a particular expression denominationally, the rest in their tradition. Um, but I, I'm also aware that there is something appealing to people about withdrawing in order to experience some kind of purity or and and I you know, I, I really engage with the Desert Fathers in our in our Christian tradition and that in my understanding was some kind of withdrawal, though I think they were a lot more engaged than than sometimes so the Desert Fathers, you know, in some tellings of it they kind of saved the Christian faith at, at times that were very precarious culturally. So there's something okay about withdrawal, I suppose, but the author of this article seems to be talking about the good things, but they, I, if memory serves, they end with kind of, mm. but there's some some negative things down the road that could be coming. Uh, anybody? David yeah, Sierra, I mean, they, they also talk about um, kids who are pushing against it, right? Those that have yeah. moved away. There is also another piece that there are still people, they call them townies, 
people who don't necessarily right. subscribe to that but live there. And well, they and have lived there for have, a long time. So there yeah, are, that's there their are home, outsiders but now. Feel, yes, yes, they're outsiders <laughs> yeah. in their own town, yeah. the, the townies. It sounds, again, that good old days kind of, I don't know, there's language there that is old this, <laughs> feeling. This kind of uh, sort of desire, it's easy to understand the desire, wanting to have a pure world and what yeah. have you. But it does strike me as, um, you know, anthropologists would talk about uh, a prophylactic religion, mm. a religion that protects mm. you from something. So I've often thought that um, ideology, particularly religious ideologies, other ideologies as well, but religious ideologies are to actual faith what a condom mm. is to procreation. Uh. It will protect oh, yeah. you, but there is nothing creative in it. Mm. Yeah, mm. That, that, that's a, that's obviously quite a striking metaphor, but I I think it makes sense right away. It yeah. it's seeing it things leads, as a disease, right? It's yes. the fear of the it disease. It can't lead to life, right? Ever, mm -hmm. yeah. There's life, no space. Life always requires the opposite, and what is different. Thank you. Mm -hmm. It's uh, they and and so you can pick that up in this. And there's mm -hmm. another quote. I, I think they stood out for me the most. The quotes that that mm -hmm. um, connected the withdrawal with <laughs> withdrawal with the condom metaphor. But anyway, <laughs> the, with the the withdrawal from culture and and bridging that to heaven, salvation. Mm -hmm. That this is not just an act of kind of purity, but by this we gain our salvation. Uh, they put it in this way here. Uh, they do speak some of the positives. There's a couple that speaks about having moved from New York and now feeling community where they didn't feel community kind of in the big city before. I think sometimes cities get lots of shots taken at them. Um, but here, mothers trade strollers and bassinets and coordinate a constant supply of casseroles when a new baby arrives. Michelle uh, relies on her neighbors for carpooling and in emergencies, trusting them implicitly. And Michelle says... We're all Catholic here, she told me. We're all raising our children to go to heaven. And her husband works for a manufacturing business uh, and that, like many of the companies in the town, is owned by a fellow uh, member of the society and so therefore he gets time off to attend Mass and observe Holy Days of Obligation. You can see the appeal. Well, and I mean, I think that as somebody who grew up in, in a, a Christian community, like... I, I can very much sympathize with that. Uh, we've had times in our lives where for one reason or another, like when, when our children were born, our faith community brought us casseroles. When I had a series of surgeries and health struggles, people, there, there was a constant stream of kind of like my tribe that ended up coming through my house, babysitting my, my son when I couldn't pick him up. And all of those people were from my faith community and, and my family. So I, I get the, I can, I can sympathize with, with the desire to have that. I'm not sure I need it on quite as large of a scale as the entire town, but I also just have a much smaller need right. for social interaction. It so that's just me. <laughs> it also kind of fits into that idea that people in the big city are lonely, right? You hear that sometimes yeah. that there's this loneliness yeah. that's prevalent. And so they kind yeah. of touch on, you know, I left the big city and now I have this community of people. And the big city is also kind of a metaphor for like, the Absolutely. outside world. Well, and secular yeah. Yeah. sort of mm -hmm. non-religious society. Yeah. The uh, I'll read one last quote. I think I, I do as I'm reading this, because some of the things we're going to talk about later in the podcast, how we relate to the other concepts of hospitality, speaking across religious understanding, different faiths. 
I mean, to think of what does this community and I can't I I'm, I can't say this is what they think or this is what they teach, but I at least in my in my head have the question: What are they telling their children about people who are Muslim? What are they? You know, how are they talking about people of other faiths or other understandings? Or what are they telling them about Pope Francis? Or <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, that I could probably guess a little more accurately. Yeah. Mm. yeah. That uh, and so, sorry, Allison, go ahead. And oh no, I was just going to say this: they do identify as like a more conservative Catholic uh, offshoot. Well, I mean, we we didn't mention the most controversial thing in the article, which is that you know the kind of pre-Vatican II nature and that they have also made a, a big point of of um, rejecting various rejections in terms of some things that might have been considered anti-Semitic. They do also practice excommunication. They do also practice excommunication. They have cast out people in their community. Yeah. Uh, usually, I would think over that. moral issues is what it was. Very more? much so. Yeah, they did touch on one woman was cast out because a friend of hers had an abortion. And oh, they I took do it remember with, that now. Yeah, because she didn't intervene and she allowed it to uh, happen, they decided that she shouldn't be part of that community anymore. Do they say what happened with her? I, I do recall it, like what happened with that woman. Uh, she's married she's with children and living and a happy life, not in that community. I do think now I remember that they also said there's ways for her to for her to come back if she would like to. Yes. We provide bridges for people to, like excommunication isn't necessarily forever. But, oh, I would but there's going to be a lot of strings. There's a lot of penance that, that needed and to go of, with yeah. it. Yeah. So to end, and then we'll welcome uh, Ken <laughs> Ken Bell to walk us uh, through the tasting and the rector's cupboard. But here's the quote that I think it ended the article. What the society has built in St. Mary's is more like a haven for those retreating from the culture wars than a training ground for battle. Safe behind its walls, parishioners can seem uninterested in the moral failings of the outside world and untroubled by the country's political turmoil. Uh, so, interesting article. It's in the uh, January-February, that's one issue of Atlantic uh, magazine. We recommend reading it. It refers there to also, it's Rod Dreher, right? That's how I say it. Um, uh, this Benedict Option book from, uh, I think it's probably three or four years ago now, that was really, really popular, uh, which uh, what Dreher was saying is, you know, things are so bad now that the only responsible thing for Christians to do is to disengage. So it kind of plays on some of those themes. It's interesting to me that this is, at least in some ways, appealing to young people or to some young people, and that's something worth considering as well. So thanks, everybody, for um, your participation. I'm welcoming, we are all welcoming Ken Bell, our, our uh, what's your official title? You oversee the rector's cupboard. I guess so, yeah. Cupboard and, master. And uh, are the person who brings the spirits. I'm the key keeper of the cupboard. And so Ken is here to walk us through the tasting uh, for this afternoon. Ken, Thank tell you us very what much. you got. Well, I went to uh, a distillery in Vancouver, in the east side of Vancouver, called Odd Society. They've been around for quite a while and have quite a variety of gins and vodkas. And uh, they make their own vermouth and they make some cassis. Uh, but what I zeroed in on, because I know that our guest enjoys uh, scotches and whiskeys and ryes, is a Canadian rye called uh, Prospector, which I also thought being out in the Fraser Valley where uh, the gold rush uh, really took hold in, in this area and you can still go gold panning, I thought it was another good tie-in for uh, the taste that we're going to have today. So it is a Canadian rye. It's all 100% rye from uh, northern, uh, northern BC. And as you taste it and smell it, there should be lots of sort of brown sugar and vanilla and prune. Uh, it's aged in white oak Ricky barrels, tea. heavily <laughs> charred. 
Mm. And so uh, enjoy it. Say what? What do people think? Their first first experience Ricky of tasting. T, what do you think? That. I'll say it because you're not on it. He took a tiny sip. He, he seemed satisfied. I enjoyed it. I mean, it also seems like a, a nice, it, it has a nice warming effect, which considering like the all the snow, like the, there is snow. if here, anyone's listening beautiful. to this, you'll know the week that we recorded this podcast because we said there's snow outside, but it, it seems like very the apt snow for that. apocalypse oh my of 2020. <laughs> David, as, as, as an aficionado of uh, rye and whiskey, or to someone who likes, enjoys it, mm-hmm. what, do you, what do you think of uh, well, I, Odd Society's take on a Canadian rye? Well, uh, they got a great name. Mm. <laughs> they, they do have a <laughs> And um, what is striking to my palate is the distinctiveness of that rye coming from northern British Columbia instead of uh, northern Alberta. Yes, yeah. Well, I can certainly taste that. As it's well more as environmentally as friendly <laughs> coming from northern BC. As well as the fact that um, we would be, of course, in Alberta uh, putting this for, uh, for many months in uh, black oak. Black oak. Barrels. As opposed okay. to white. As opposed to white oak barrels. But I know you're much purer out here. <laughs> well, this is tr- this is true. So, now, Did you tell us a little bit about Odd Society? Did I miss that when I stepped away? Uh, just no. that they've been you around. Uh, not, a, not a ton. They've been around for um, about eight, seven or eight years. And uh, I said, yeah, they have a variety of different things. They're located in the downtown east side of Vancouver. Got a great tasting room. And we're hoping to actually uh, record a podcast there in Fantastic. the in the future. So we'll They're enjoy the more of, of their stuff. distillers, local micro distillers, right? Yeah, know called that, yeah. And they have, as I say, they have quite a bit. They even make their own vermouth and stuff, which is sold in a lot of other uh, places. That you, you can, can get buy their right stuff then. in a regular liquor store. Yeah. So, mm. so enjoy it. We do. We do find yeah. that uh, that uh, this kind of opens up the conversation sometimes, <laughs> and so uh, let's uh, continue. If you're if you run out and you would like some more, just wave your finger towards me, and I will. Uh, <laughs> I think she would like a little bit more right now. And you have a job to do now, and that I, is to I introduce do. our distinguished guest. It is yeah. It's my pleasure to uh, get to introduce David. In fact, the first time we ever met David was at a Scotch bar on a place called Blood Alley. That's right. Which is um, the Shebane Room. Appropriate that this is this is where we're meeting again. And then we had There's David. Power in the blood. There right? is. <laughs> and we copied the tasting room theology idea from that as well. Because we that was called uh, what was the name? Theology on Tap. Theology on Tap, thank you. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, a couple years ago, three years ago actually in February, we invited David to come and uh, speak to us at a tasting room theology event on uh, Christian hospitality, Christian's hospitality to Muslims. Uh, it was one of our best attended. It was our best attended event. It was fantastic. Um, it was wonderful, and uh, it was controversial, and people had pushback and stuff. But it was a phenomenal conversation on the responsibility Christians have towards hospitality and Muslims. And so it is my pleasure to. I can't go into all that you are, David, because it's not possible to uh, encapsulate someone website you can you which can go to is david goa.ca david goa.ca g-o-a david goa.ca yes that's you. right thank you um but you a couple of highlights from david's life you you grew up in the uh in a in an evangelical church and and you will we may get into this you you kind of moved towards the east as you discovered people like saint athanasius and others 
you were the curator of, of culture at the Royal Alberta Museum. You were the founding director of the Chester Ronning Center for Religion and Public Life at the University of Alberta for a long time. Uh, you currently spend time teaching in one of Alberta's maximum security prisons mm. and teaching what you would expect people in a maximum security prison to learn about, philosophy, theology, great literature, uh, all those sort of things that you would expect would be on there. And agenda. I'm really grateful that you've been able to come to the prison so you could in, <laughs> we could have this conversation together here <laughs> in the prison. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Uh, and one of the things That's that... Well is really interesting uh, is part of your teaching and stuff has taken you over to a, a great study and understanding of, uh, of Islam and, and, and Muslim cultures. And so you spend time teaching and lecturing and, and having conversations, especially over in Turkey and Syria with uh, the Muslim community who are also willing to reach out and have conversation, intelligent conversation with intelligent Christians about faith and about culture and about living life together and reaching out in friendship and hospitality. And so we do look forward to hearing a bit more about that. So uh, that's just a brief introduction. Uh, and David also uh, is now, it, well, he wouldn't, you wouldn't necessarily call yourself this, but an Orthodox theologian uh, and uh, writer and a whole bunch of other things. I and, have been uh, accused of it, yes. Yeah, and you have a lovely house that I had a gin and tonic oh, with you right, at yeah. a couple of years ago. So, Excellent. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much, and welcome, David. And welcome thank you much. for welcoming us here, and we want to also express our gratitude to the Archbishop for welcoming us here to this beautiful place. Um, originally, we were going to record this episode in North Vancouver at like a distillery or something like that. This is even better, because uh, for us, we get to see where you have spent some time and to know this is here, this monastery is here, and so thank you. Yeah, it's All Saints of North America Orthodox Monastery in Dudney. Thank you. And I've been coming here for, well, Ludica Lazar, the abbot, is uh, probably in both senses my oldest friend. Ah. <laughs> so we've uh, known each other for and held each other dear for And how years. did you meet? Well, that's curious. I did uh, a large body of work in the mid-80s on um, the liturgical life of the Eastern Christian churches. So I did research in the whole range of them from the various cultures that they come from, Eastern European, Near Eastern, African, Indian, as well as going to all the monasteries in North America. But it was also the time that the World Council of Churches was going to be meeting in Vancouver. And I had run across uh, some publications from this particular monastery, although its location mm. at the time was different. And I found these publications mm. very curious. So I called, and on my way to Vancouver, to the World Council of Churches, where I'd been invited by another bishop to be part of their delegation so I'd have the chance to meet hierarchs in the Orthodox Church from all around the world. The World Council of Churches, you know, is a kind of united nations of, of Christian churches. So I drove up the mountain to where the monastery was located mm -hmm. at the time and met them, not realizing that my beloved friend yeah. was virulently opposed to ecumenism at the time, <laughs> and the fact that I was going to the World Council of Churches, you know, in some ways painted me as a demon. However, 
in good orthodox fashion. You were welcomed. He met me with bread and salt. Yeah. And uh, he, he played the long game. And uh, I would say that at this point, uh, once he became a bishop, he became much more interested in what it meant to have these kind of conversations across right. jurisdictions. And uh, what do you think, I mean, we have some familiarity in people like Ken and myself who've, who've, who've done some theological studies, and we have, s of course, some familiarity with the orthodox uh, expression of, of Christian faith. What do you think most, I guess you would say either evangelicals or, I mean, that's a background that many of us are coming from. What do you think they think of when they think of the orthodox Christian faith? What nothing. kind of perception? Nothing at all. Like, they don't even know about it. Well, I mean, these days it's a little bit better, but this is a curious matter. I mean, I studied um, theology in a somewhat more formal way. I mean, I've read it all my life since I was a teenager, but I studied in a more formal way in the 60s in Chicago. And, um, you know, that's... I mean, it's a long time ago for all of you because none of you were born. <laughs> but uh, <coughs> it isn't, in fact, all that long ago. If you were to read kind of standard texts on the history of Christian ideas, uh, the Christian East would be given yeah. maybe a chapter, but it would end, at the latest, it would end with Gregory Palamas in the 12th century. And uh, certainly even somebody like uh, Adolf von Harnack, right. whose great history of right. dogma was sort of the standard work. Uh, I mean, Harnack had no time for the Christian East, thought it was a dead letter, and uh, did not see it in any way as a living tradition. My own sense is that the Christian East has a wonderful sense of the evangelical. Yep. That is a wonderful sense that we're all called in this world to proclaim the gospel of love, which heals the human family, mm -hmm. which heals the human community. And so the Orthodox churches don't necessarily do this well, but it's there. It's the call. It's there, and it's the call. The, I had a question from that in, in knowing that many friends, and I would say myself to some degree, can can be fairly ignorant of, of the orthodox expression of faith. But again, Ken and I having read quite a bit from the, you know, in various fields, um, that the orthodox faith went, as I started reading about, you know, things from the East and whether it's, and I'm thinking of different authors or different, for the life of the world, who wrote for the life of the world? Shmemen. Thank you. Um, and that, that it's one of the first places we see, and then, I remember going to an Orthodox church, I think it was out in Langley or Surrey somewhere years ago. I was taking a course at Regent College, and it was looking at different expressions of faith, and you had to go. And and this is more of a practical story that at the time, then they found out that I was working at a Plymouth Brethren background church, and I must have had like three or four people come up and say, oh, I used to be Plymouth Brethren. That They've kind of discovered the, the Orthodox expression yeah, of faith. Yeah, there's a group of them in one of the churches. Here. There's a whole group, okay. But there's the old problem, the old problem, Todd. You can take the boy out of the church, but can you take the church out of the boy? Still so we do have Orthodox priests who are still Plymouth Brethren. Right. <laughs> 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 but thank you. Uh, but one of the things that I was realizing in the reading and then that interaction was, here's, here's an expression of faith that has a different understanding 
of some very central things like judgment, hell, salvation. Um, I could you speak to some of that? That like even a, you just speak about you just spoke about healing and the gospel of love, and of course, what I know of the Orthodox faith then what kind of comes alive in my mind is there's a different concept of salvation than I had growing up in the evangelical church, which was very much that's your own personal individual salvation. Mm. So where are some of those contours or places that things might be expressed differently, even if you can think of one, of, one oh, or two? Oh, sure. Just, just, a, just a couple of them briefly. Uh, the one that struck me most deeply when I began to look seriously at... Uh, the Orthodox understanding of the spiritual life. It's important to know that within the Orthodox tradition, there isn't a dogmatic theology. Okay. There isn't a systematic theology. Okay. There isn't a church theology. Uh, there is really only one kind of theology, and it's a theology of the spiritual life. It's seeking to understand what really is the spiritual life of the human family, or to put it in terms of questions, human beings struggle with what it means to be a human being. They struggle with why they exist. They struggle with why they're wounded hmm. and why they're not whole. They wonder if they can be whole. They wonder if they are loved. They wonder if they can live to love. So the Orthodox, it's not that you don't have these other things in the Orthodox world because the Orthodox world has a wide margin of mess. Mm -hmm. So there's all kinds of things mm -hmm. in it. But certainly its long suit is the preoccupation with salvation. You know, the word that we use, salvation, is, is a translation of the Greek word sotirios. And that word really means rescue and healing. healing. Mm -hmm. And uh, while I knew that, it never really dawned on me until I was first in Greece and had landed at 2 in the morning on a, a flight where people were still smoking cigarettes, chain-smoking them, including my colleague who was with me, which was quite <laughs> extraordinary. <laughs> and feel it. On, the way, <laughs> on the way to the hotel, we passed a hospital, and there in the marquee, I don't know a lot of Greek, but I know a bit, is the word salvation, satirios. And then at the hotel next door, there's a pharmacy. There in the marquee is the word satirios. So... This was a common word in the, word, mm. the world of Jesus Christ. And if you were, as Yaroslav Pelikan has pointed mm -hmm. out in so, uh, such a brilliant way, if you were to take out of the Gospels all of the healing narratives, what would you have left? Mm -hmm. Jesus only really did two things. He blessed and he healed. And what is blessing? Blessing is regard. Blessing is seeing your face. Blessing is calling your name. Blessing is not projecting. Blessing is not presuming. It is seeing. Mm. So the Orthodox tradition, I think, at its root, because of its understanding of creation, this is the huge difference between the East and the West, okay. even in the creation narrative and the meaning of the fall is profoundly distinct. The West has a genius, great gifts, don't get me wrong. But the genius of the East is that it says that creation is God's. God created this world. It is still his world. He didn't, mm -hmm. he didn't outsource it to mm -hmm. Satan. Mm -hmm. And the big problem then is not sin. 
the big problem is how the human mind gets captured by fear and desire, gets captured by unhealed memories and utopian dreams. The big issue is how can that be healed so I can be present now as Jesus Christ was present to every single human being that he met in the Valley of the Galilee on the streets of Jerusalem, even as he hung on the cross and looked down on Longinus, the centurion. Such a hopeful, I mean, we speak a lot in trying to find names for what we're doing here with this podcast and some other things that we're doing. And, you know, one of the words that keeps coming up is hope, that we want to talk about a hopeful gospel rather than a fearful gospel. And depending on where we've grown up in areas of faith, that might mean different things. But what you share there uh, definitely moves us towards right into that hopefulness and the awareness for us that, of course, that salvation then is never only personal it's always something larger that's going on yeah that's another wonderful idea a wonderful teaching in the christian east which is this understanding (coughs) and remember this is not about a church right it's not about a denomination this is about our shared christian patrimony it belongs to you as much as it does to me it belongs to the atheist as much as it does to the archbishop Mm -hmm. who's the abbot of this Mm -hmm. monastery because it's about the human condition it's not about some kind of tribal identity or some kind of moral perfection or some kind of church. It's about a reality, which is the reality of our life. So this um, uh, sense in, in the Christian East that uh, Jesus Christ came into the world on a healing mission. Right. He came into the world to show to us again. It's as if Adonai, blessed be he, said, I have sent you the prophets to try and help. Let me show you again what it means to be human. Mm. Let me show you again who you are. And so we have the incarnation the genius of the incarnation. It seems to me, I'm reserved about what I say here, (laughs) but it seems to me the genius of the incarnation is not really about what it tells us about God. Or maybe it is that, but in a kind of curious way. The genius is what it tells us about the human nature. You were made for communion. You are communion. Mm. And the problem is you cover it up. The cro- problem is you, you flee from it. What happened in the Garden of Eden? They fled from the communion they had. And so Adonai comes down and walks in the cool of the evening. And what does he do? He calls out, <coughs> Adama, Adama, Eva, Eva, where did you go? Where did you go? This estrangement, this... Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. And then they cover themselves up and that's a, what an insight. What a beautiful yeah. psychological and spiritual insight. Yeah. Shame. Mm-hmm. Shame is what seizes us when we forget who we, we are. Because the sin in the garden of Eden isn't a moral sin. The sin in the garden of Eden isn't disobedience. Yeah. The sin Look what the word means. Missing the mark. Yeah. The sin is to step out of life. 
Life is communion. That's its being. Now, this communion then, now I, you know, listening to, and I really recommend, and we've mentioned David's uh, website that has, and you can, on there, you'll be able to find the written version of Christian Responsibility to Muslims, the lecture series that you gave some time back. Um, and I really recommend people listening to this uh, look that up. And But this then, um, it's different. It's more than common humanity, This what you've just been speaking about, then allows you, calls you to be in relationship with people who don't share the same faith as you or don't. That I mean, you've done a lot of work um, in parts of the world where the predominant expression of faith is Islam. And you speak so well and beautifully about your friendships. You speak about f- spiritual friendship. And I, I'm going to forget his name again, the imam that you were friends with for so long. Yeah, imam. Ahmed Al-Shakawi. A blessed, uh, a blessed memory. Okay. And, uh, how long ago did he die? Oh, it was a few years. Okay. ago. Okay. Uh, but it's such a striking story that um, you share in, in uh, I think it's the second talk there, where... Um, and I don't know the experience that you were having within your own, your own local church, but um, you say that your friend, the imam, you were speaking to him and telling him about some of your experience and how both in familial regard and then I guess, you know, going a circle further, the congregation itself had been somewhat, uh, I guess the right word is upset or put off by the way I interpreted it and you're telling was kind of the openness of your faith or your willingness to, to love across some of these lines um, and that you confess this to him and some of your own relatives and friends and the struggle that you saw uh, and that they were feeling in the face of your faith that was different maybe than they had understood and that they were pushing back. You mentioned there, I think it was in that place and I was thinking about you as you were speaking earlier about prayer being masqueraded as blessing or curses being masqueraded as blessing. That's something that I think can resonate with some of us the way we can treat one another but um your friend uh the imam leaned forward to you this is mm-hmm. the way you put it and said oh david oh david mm-hmm. you must not you must not let them do that it is dangerous tell them that they cannot speak to you that way about my spiritual life they cannot wash your faith yeah. in their doubt and, and fear. fear you might you obviously remember Oh, yeah, this. Yeah. Well, Imam al-Shakawi was an Egyptian, and um, he'd been deeply influenced by the Sufi tradition, the mystical tradition of Islam, which, uh, it's my sense, comes straight out of the Orthodox monasteries of the Christian East. Uh, mm. There are curious uh, matters in that journey, but certainly the preoccupation with the love of God and the mercy of God is is something that we see in the Desert Father tradition than we see it in this tradition. Uh, Al-Shakawi was a man who himself had suffered a great deal. And uh, when I first met him, I thought, ah, I finally found the person who I can read the Quran with. (laughs) (laughs) So this was in Alberta, right? Correct. Uh, He was serving a mosque in Alberta. Uh, The Quran, uh, just like the Christian scripture, is a dangerous document to read. You know, we should never read the scripture alone uh, because you might believe what you think. And the scripture's a hot text. And uh, if you believe what you think, you will engage in idolatry immediately. 
I mean, there's a reason why the Jews have this spiritual discipline, that you never even take out the scripture right. without 10 people being present. Mm. Mm. And the reason is that this is revelation. And revelation and idolatry are located immediately on either side of the veil. On either side of the veil, and the veil is thin. So you need to hear the responses from a variety of people. Uh, not because there's a debate here, right. but because it's a dynamic word. It's a, it's a living word. Right. And it has to be living and, of course, the opposite of an ideological word is a living word. Right. People who are engaged in ideology are harking back to 1950s and leave it to Bieber. Or they're harking back yep. to some kind of, you know, maybe even 17th century scholasticism yep. or something. And the issue is the revelation is a living word. That's why it's a revelation. It unveils the mystery of the dynamism of our life in relationship and in communion with each other. So... Al Shakawi and I, I mean, I asked him if I could read uh, the Quran with him, so he gave me uh, a copy of it, which is inscribed, which I treasure. Mm. And we were sitting at my kitchen table, and he, was, he wasn't the best person to read the Quran with because he was a little bit drunk with God. He's Sufi when he's reading the Of course, Quran. yeah. And maybe you have had people in your life yeah. who are drunk with yeah. God. I he's mean, why are we drinking, uh, by the way, a little bit more? <laughs> yes, of course, David. <laughs> uh, it's lovely. So we would just begin. We would get into he would, he the would text. Get lost. And he'd be yeah. bang. Yeah. Not ignoring me, but speaking with, out of the center of his heart for what he loved about the text and what the text was saying to him. That was far more important than four years of the right. critical study of the Quran, hmm. much less the critical study of the Hebrew Bible right. and the Christian scripture. So, because you see its spiritual dynamism. So we had, we had spent some time uh, reading together and listening to him and my engaging him and there was something in that text that led me to, uh, I'm, I'm not sure why I, well, I guess I do know, but I confessed to him a bit of a struggle in my life with some people close to me, mm. people that I loved in my own broken way, but who were very fearful yeah. of my what they understood of my spiritual life, although they never actually asked anything about it. Yeah. <laughs> but they themselves had their own struggles, no doubt, and, and, and were... So would they have seen you as some kind of threat to something, yeah, potentially? Uh, of think? course, it's all about okay. fear. This is all about fear. They were sort of evangelical on the more fundamentalist side yeah. of things, and, and they had reason to be afraid. Sure. Because I was, you know, young. Yeah, you were a threat. <laughs> I was <laughs> to young. To that. Well, yeah. but I was also young, and I wasn't okay. exactly... Um, humble so <laughs> they um so i told him about this and that was so amazing to me and you you recounted it very nicely because for me it was so important because i had never had i didn't have anybody in my life at that point who could say such a thing right to me. i picked that up in listening to the way you said that and he you know he saw this as a real spiritual danger 
You said he had tears in his eyes. He had he tears said. in his eyes, and he said, no, 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 no. David, 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 don't let them do that. Don't let them do that. Because they may pollute what I see. Uh, I see. This is what he's communicating to me. What he saw was an unbelievable affirmation and blessing on my spiritual life. So it wasn't the warning that was so powerful to me, although that was... It was the fact was that, that he, he recognized <laughs> that I deeply cared. Yeah. That this was not some kind of ideological battle with evangelicals. This was my sense of the wonder of the gospel. What do you think, when he says, and don't let them do that, I mean, he ended with, as you recounted it, he ended with, if they, d- if they continue to do this, you must walk away, was his... But when he says, don't let them do that, how do you affect that? How do you not let them do that, do you think? Because we've all, I, most of us here have experienced something similar, and I don't want to put it on people that they've done this to us, but I, I, can, I think it resonates with me because there's a familiarity. Uh, what, it, what does it mean then to not let them do that? Well, I take some responsibility for this. Um. You know, my sense is that we all have a responsibility not simply to speak out of what we deeply care about, not simply to speak truth, if you will, not simply to give a testimony of wherever we are at or our understanding. Uh, And this, I think, I draw really from from the gospel. We have a responsibility to speak in such a way that we can be heard. Hmm. And my, uh, hmm. I confess this to you, I spent a large part hmm. of my earlier life arguing theology, hmm. uh, debating. I grew up in a home where this was common, right. and I learned to do it at a very young age. I mean, I still have a memory of taking on a Sunday school teacher <laughs> who believed only in adult baptism. And like you know, a believer was, baptism or something? That's right, believer well, baptism. It somehow doesn't surprise me, David. Yeah. <laughs> what, that David would take that <laughs> yes. person on? Yes. And I mean, I was like... Did they change their mind? I was 13 or 14 years old. And this man was a simple man. He was a simple man. He was a good man, but he was a simple man. And I was 13 or 14 years old. But, I mean, I, you I was raised as a Lutheran, you know. I was raised with a deep sense of the sacramental dimensions yes. of infant baptism. And so he had made his declarations and what have you, and the church that we were going to held to both forms. And so I said... Well, the church held to both forms, but he didn't. He, no, he didn't. He okay. held to one. So I said to him, I think... No, nah, I, I want to say I think <laughs> politely, but, you know, on retrospect, probably not politely. You were politely. 13, the chances. I was 13. <laughs> I said, so, so you mean to tell me that this is all about adults, and it's literally the case, he quoted from, from the narrative of both Paul and the narrative about the baptism of Jesus and how we were buried with Christ. I said, so we're buried with Christ for three days, so do you hold the person <laughs> down for three days? <laughs> and he said... Some well, kind of he discipline was hu- is in order. He was humiliated, right? Which and I sinned against yeah. him. I mm. know that, and I feel sorrow for it. Mm. Um, 
So my sense is that we have a responsibility, as best lieth within us, to find ways of speaking when we're, particularly if we're speaking about serious matters, and nothing is more serious than our own understanding of the spiritual life. And there's nothing we should speak more humbly about than our sense of our sense of our spiritual life. So that's another factor. Thirteen mm-hmm. year olds aren't very humble. <laughs> so finding a way to speak about these treasured things in a way which has a chance to be heard. Now you that's not guaranteed, but I know in this well, case this in this case, yeah. I know that I am the chief of sinners, yeah. not them. Yeah. The I, This actually brings me to something that I know, Allison, you've resonated with this. Um, this It's a quote from your father, I believe, if, if I'm remembering correctly, and it's quite quick. We've used it. You guys would be familiar with it. Oh, Todd has quoted it extensively. Well, David. you can ask the question then. What does he mean? Yeah. Well, I mean, I've heard it mostly via Todd through, through various talks that he said that um, he talks about most people are better than their theology. And I know that I've experienced times where times where where theology and faith has been very harsh against me by people that 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 I love dearly or that I have understood as as more kind than what they are saying. And I was wondering if you could expand on how you understood that that quote, and I mean, I'm I'm kind of worried that maybe Todd is misquoting you here, but I mean, he uses it extensively. I'm just I just say it as it's most beautiful. people are better than their theology. That's what I'm saying. Your father said that, correct? Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I think it's. Uh, I mean, my father knew. I mean, my father knew many people within the church and many clergy and what have you. My father was a carpenter, but also a kind of Hasidic rabbi. You know, he. <laughs> I felt like I grew up in a <coughs> between the the leather bindings of the scripture without the synagogue, and um, so he had a deep affection for the scripture. And of course, he argued around evangelical literalist and liberal modernist issues. But after dinner in the evening, when he opened up the scripture, it was a different stance. It was a stance of listening to what was being said about his day from the divine. And that's a beautiful thing to see, to see both of those things. So my father loved a good story. So, I mean, he often talked to people on the streets and what have you, and there was never any litmus test about what they believed or what have you. He understood that the Holy Spirit was present in everybody, whether they knew it or not. So (coughs) the issue is, I think, a pretty simple one, that uh, there is no theological expression that can express the truth from Ah. a Christian perspective. Ah. Hmm. The Christian perspective is one that says the truth can never be codified. Why is that? One of my favorite passages in the gospel is where Jesus says, I am, I am. Where does that, where do we hear that? We hear that back in Genesis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We hear that in Moses behind the mountain receiving his vocation, I am. And also in Hebrew, if you look at it carefully, that actually means I am that which is becoming, that which is unfolding. It's the dynamism of the divine revelation. The divine revelation can never be fixed. Mm. 
thanks be to God. Mm -hmm. Because if it can be, I'm in hell. Yeah. So the the comment I think is one that that was saying that my father had realized both from people within the church, pastors and other people within the church who were struggling and what have you, and realized in people that he worked with in his in his work sites, people who were drunks and cursed all the time, realized that all of them had a kind of theology. That is, all of them had a way of thinking right. about divine, uh, about right. ultimate things. Because theology is what? Knowledge of what is ultimate. And that's not knowledge about what is ultimate, because we don't know anything about what's ultimate. I'll come back to that. <laughs> we know what people think is ultimate. That is, we know about it. their idolatries. The main narrative I suggest this to you, just for kicks. You may have to give more. More <laughs> <laughs> society. But my sense is that the central narrative of the Bible, from Genesis through Revelation, the central narrative, and I'd be really interested in your thoughts, all of your thoughts about mm-hmm. this, is about idolatry. That is, it's a narrative about how God is misunderstood. It's a constant way in which the misunderstanding occurs of the divine and the divine opens up a crack to let some light shine in again. Well, I mean, you see that in how Jesus interacts with the Pharisees, like the the religious elite of the day who think that they have the means of whether it's control or just understanding and how they interact with people and how Jesus interacts with them that you're like, maybe you don't quite have the position to tell people that they can't pick up a mat on the Sabbath or that they can't pick food on the Sabbath. Like, who are you to tell the Son of God he can't heal somebody on the Sabbath? And he he always, and this is one thing that, that I've heard often that Todd and, has expressed. And who, have you, who are you to tell the Son of Man yes. he can't heal somebody on the Sabbath? <laughs> um, I know that, that Todd has also um, often said that when, when Jesus, Jesus never removes people's humanity when he interacts with them. And that when he ends up uh, confronting the Pharisees, it's always done as a group. But when he sees them as a person, that he, he always chooses to, to treat them as, as a human, to not, to not take their stances or to not take their ideologies and, and force them into that corner. And I think that that is a really beautiful thing that Jesus does and a really powerful example that he sets for us that when we encounter people that we strongly disagree with and that we may have issues with how they're choosing to make decisions about their lives or how they're choosing to uh, talk about faith that he never reduces them well and and as you said in your sim in in some of your lectures I've listened to that he doesn't reduce them to symbols and he chooses to fully recognize their humanity and I think that is so beautiful and it is so essential and I know that that can often from from an evangelical perspective as as I've grown up in how I've related with people with other faith or how I've been told to relate with people with other faith is it's been really difficult to see them and see their humanity that that they are 
what the media has told me mm-hmm. they mm-hmm. are, mm-hmm. that they are. Mm-hmm. And I think that Jesus is constantly calling us out of that, mm-hmm. constantly calling us to, to see their humanity and to treat them and to respect them in their humanity as he mm-hmm. would have. And I don't see that necessarily happening from from maybe like the institution of the church. Mm-hmm. It's it's hard for an institution to mm-hmm. do that. So, so, so we have... Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, if I can respond to this. That's beautifully spoken. Thank you for that. I would just suggest one thing that strikes me about it, and it has to do with this word choosing. Mm. My sense, and you can... You can tell me what you think about this. God has no choice. Yeah. Human beings, he created human beings to say no. That's our choice. Mm-hmm. Human beings can step out of communion. God is only communion. So Jesus, in that sense, if, if I've understood, and don't get me wrong, I think he, what you've said here is really beautiful. But my sense is that Jesus Christ wasn't choosing. Jesus Christ was himself. Right. He simply was communion. And that that's what we are called right. to. And mm. that what happened in the, in the narrative in the garden, the narrative about the fall, the reason it is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is that we have the capacity to imagine that that tree exists when, in fact, that tree is a fiction of the evil one. Hmm. That tree is the imagination of Satan, that the world is a world of good and evil. And our mother Eve, our father Adam, our mind, because that narrative is about us. It's not about some ancestor. It is about that. I'm happy to say that. But it's also about us. Every time we are in that position where we are tempted to know that which we already know but have forgotten we do. What, what does Satan say? Right. What's the temptation? Satan says you can become like God, knowing good and evil. Two lies. Right. They already are like God. Mm-hmm. Well, he created them in his yeah. image. <laughs> image and likeness, yes. He breathed That's life right. into yeah. them. That's exactly right. So they already are that. You can only accept the lie, if you've forgotten that. Knowing good and evil. And I would argue, I know there's a debate in Christian thought about this, but that God does not know evil. Mm-hmm. In God there is no shadow of turning, no death and dying. Only that which is illuminated, that which is grace-filled. So our ancestor and our mind, because this is a narrative about us as much as it is about Adam and Eve. It's a narrative about the human experience. So to know good and evil, that is to assume in my Muslim brother or sister, to assume in the atheist, to assume in somebody in my church who I take exception to, that somehow uh. or other they're beyond the pale. Uh. To assume that is to know good and evil. Uh. And so what my call I think, and it's not, it's not a call to something else. It's a, it's a call to return, to restore. Yep. Sure. 
To know as God knows is to know in communion and to seek, to seek that which is life-giving in these situations, accepting the difference, accepting the difference and knowing that the difference, whatever that might mean, may also be illuminating. Right. This is where the, the whole issue of hospitality comes in. I love the story of our ancestor, Abraham and Sarah. There, uh, as we read in, in the text, uh, it says Abraham is in the tent, the, the door of the tent, and he's looking out, and he sees the three strangers. <laughs> he sees the other. Well, he sees that which is unknown. And that which is unknown in a place where you can't call 911. In a place where there's no civil order. This is different than our world. And he sees the three strangers under the oaks of Marmory. And what does it say? It's so beautiful the yeah. way this says. It says he runs to them. He runs to them and he says, please, please, don't pass by. That's a very courageous hospitality. All hospitality is courageous. Yeah. But look at its fruit. Look at its fruit. Yes. And he says, stay, stay. And he runs back and says to Sarah, bake some cakes. And then to his servants, kill the fatted calf. And then it says, they serve the fatted calf with cream. Mm. <laughs> it's pre-kashrut. This isn't about the, the Jewish law hasn't been invented yeah. yet. <laughs> <coughs> and they have a little feast. And then what happens? What happens? Because this is what hospitality is all about. I love the word, you know, the root of that word. It's very interesting, the root of that word. Hospitality. Host. You know, for Catholics and Orthodox people, the bread is the host of Jesus Christ. Mm. Hospital. Yeah. The place of healing. Hostile, the place of refuge. Hostility, the place of the rejection of the stranger. Mm. They're all part of the root of that word. So what happens? They have their little feast. And then the strangers speak. And what do they say? They say to Abraham and to Sarah, Sarah's in the tent because I've spent time in the Near East. This is the way it is got this gender discrimination men do the serving not women which is something we could learn something about. <laughs> um, because women can't serve strange men so maybe there's something good in this <coughs> so what did the strangers say ah we will come back and in a year time a year's time yeah. you will have yeah. a child hmm. and then the text is beautiful I love this. And in Hebrew, it's even better. Sarah, in the tent, laughs. Yeah. She laughs. She says, ah, ha, ha. What a ridiculous idea. These people, these guys don't know what's going on. My husband can't even get it up anymore. <laughs> <laughs> He's too old. In the Hebrew. In He's Hebrew. too old. So... There is that wow. extraordinary moment. Every single meeting with strangers, just as it is with Mary 
and the angel Jibril. Every single meeting with strangers has within itself the narrative of the birth of a revelation, of a new insight, mm -hmm. of a new relationship. So to my mind, when we meet people that are different from us, we have been given a divine revelation. The, uh, mm -hmm. I listened uh, a while back to, of all, it was on CBC Radio on Ideas, um, I think what Paul, Paul Kennedy was hosting, and, and there was a series done, I can't remember who did it, you, you might, and the series was called Faith After Atheism, mm. and in that series, uh, one of the points that was made was that uh, it is true believers, and they had a particular definition, that actually kill faith <laughs> in terms of, and, and the story they used for people who are kind of better than true believers are those who welcome the stranger, and it was the exact same Abraham story you share that they used. Uh, a couple other things, and I know our I just want to keep talking to you because <laughs> if that's okay, or hearing from you. I would like to ask about your your some reflection on recent events. We're, we're recording at a time where the events of this past two weeks have been um, the assassination of uh, Soleimani in Iran, and then the response, and then the, sh the um, accidental shooting down of this passenger jet, and I'd like to just get some reflection from you on that. But before we do that, the last kind of quote that I wanted to just get a reflection from you on was, uh, again, from one of your talks, and you speak about uh, Ephraim Isaac of Syria, um, speaking about truth. And he says the following, as you quoted, someone who has tasted truth is not contentious for truth. Someone who is considered by people to be zealous for truth has not yet learned what truth is really like. Once he has truly learnt it, he will cease from zealousness on its behalf. Uh, I think you asked us about idolatry and that sense that, uh, you know, how truth plays with the absolute, that idolatry is where we hang our absolutes and then define people as the other and the outsider. And the But I just wanted to see if you would be willing to reflect on this uh, quote from Isaac, the Syrian, in terms of how we understand truth. Yes, I did quote that uh, lovely text from Jesus Christ, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. The way, the truth, and the life are the same thing. So what are they? Well, they're surely not an abstraction. Mm. They're surely not a proposition. And what we have done, I mean, I have a large regard for our philosophical tradition. I love it, as I do our theological tradition. But one of the habits of mind that has developed is to fill the category of truth with a set of abstractions. One of the habits of mind is to build a theological cathedral to try and marry God's righteousness mm -hmm. and God's justice with God's love and God's mercy. And that has led to these huge abstract cathedrals. Hmm. Uh, my sense is that uh, I love the truth, just like I love the term God, even though I know God isn't a name. God isn't something. God isn't a being in Christian tradition. 
It's much, much more profound than that. So there are these, the God word and the truth word are words that you must never fill. You must treasure and hold gently and never fill them. Because the moment you fill them, you destroy what they're about. They are about the opening, the possibility, the presence to that which you perhaps will never understand. Amen. So I, we, we, as I say, we've come out, we haven't, because I don't think there's anybody here who has suffered under the recent events, but we live among uh, people who have suffered greatly. Um, as I say, most of us are from North Vancouver, and there's a large Persian Iranian community there, and a number of people um, from that community and from your sh community of Edmonton uh, died in this tragic uh, shooting down of this this uh, plane. Um, I, I mean, it's <laughs> literally, I'm just. I want to hear from someone like you. Uh, your thoughts on the whole thing. You know more than than we do about the history from the Iranian Revolution and before the Shah and on. Um, give us some insight or some some thoughts, some reflection on what's going on. Well, I don't know if I can do that. There are several things that are striking to me. Uh, I paid a lot of attention to Iran in my latter student days in Chicago uh, around the time uh, when the Iranian Revolution was beginning to unfold. I understood about the Shah of Iran, about how he was installed in that position. So by the Shah was installed as? By Americans. Yeah. And, uh, and the not last and not not loved in the last accepted. religious leader in that community was assassinated, right. and um, that may also have been at the hands of the Americans. I'm not sure, but the Shah was installed because we have we have a curious thing going on in the West, and certainly in in America, it's very vivid. In America, we absolutely love s hyper uh, hyper hyper-secularist governments, mm. virulent secularism in the Muslim world. Mm. We want it everywhere else except here. You know, the only well, place... You the United States, you, you, couldn't, right. you couldn't have an atheist president in the United States, but yeah, okay. You have to have one over there. Right. Yes. And we've installed them over there ever since this, the First World War, the end of the Ottoman Empire. We've insisted on that in all those places despite the fact that those communities have been largely pious. So it has been against the culture. It's the whole issue of whether the leadership has a relationship to the culture and draws the best from the culture or whether it is imposed upon it. So this is the tragedy of our colonial and imperial efforts. Uh, don't get me wrong, I'm not like many of my colleagues, I'm not simply opposed to colonialism or imperialism. Mm -hmm. I can see values in that too. In, in my church, we pray, put not your faith in princes and the sons of men, for when their breath departs, all their plans will become up to, as dust. So I understand that governments are governments and empires and nations. These things are part of the secondary levels of reality. But the simple historical reality is that we've done this, and we've done this 
in a very unapologetic way without any regard for what constitutes mm. what could possibly take root in those communities. So the result of that is, is, is so terrible, it seems to me. So I remember when the Shah of Iran uh, had to leave right. Tehran. So this is 1979. Right, 79. And on CBC, there was actually somebody, I believe, on the plane with the Ayatollah Khomeini, who was flying back from France. I heard an interview with her, yeah. And, um, and she, she was reporting on what was happening. So they come into the airport where this incident, and the plane has to do a corkscrew. Yeah, we've all circled because over of what. So this is announced by the pilot, and he says, this is going to appear very demanding. Relax, we're okay because it puts G-forces on you. And that was because of the, the kind of danger of exactly what oh, happened. To that so they degree. land, okay. and of course there are millions of people in the streets. Now one of my colleagues at the U of A is from that generation. He was a young teenager at the time, and he was very supportive of the Ayatollah because there were lots of these utopian dreams the about what could much. happen. And if you're under virulent secularism, think of Russia, if we want a Christian model. Think of what it meant for Orthodox Christians. And you evangelicals right. have had a role in this. Think of what it meant for Orthodox Christians to live under the Bolshevik period, and then for that to come to an end. Or think about our spiritual ancestors, Eusebius, and a number of other folks that lived under the horrific uh, pogroms yeah. of the Roman emperor. If you won't burn incense to the emperor, if you won't declare him as God, we don't care if you believe it or not, you just have to say it. Then we are going to crucify you or we are going to put you to death. So when you come out of a virulent period like that of persecution, it's a huge relief to actually have your religious authorities recognized and have some mm. possibility of living a normal life. But, of course, nothing is very normal in human history. So the end result of the situation in Iran is that as soon as the Ayatollah establishes the Iranian Revolution, and I'm not a supporter of that, but, you know, I'm not a supporter of anything in right. history. Right. As soon as that occurs... As soon as that occurs, you have a period where, in my memory, there was an interest in the United States and Canada about Islam, and particularly Shia Islam, because Shia is distinct. gives us more pathways of dialogue, I think, than, than other forms of Islam. So there was a period of opening, and there were a number of things done on American television which were reaching out to help us understand Islam. But it took about a year or two and all of a sudden, bang, the doors seize. And what happens? Mm. Moscow and Washington. Think of this in terms of what's going on right now. Sure. Moscow and Washington decide, aha, we have a common enemy. It's Islam. Sure. It's Islam. And so they gang up on Iran, and they collectively boycott Iran. This is Horrific, in my view. 
And that has gone on since, well, since not 79, but certainly mm-hmm. 81. Yeah. It's gone on. And now we have a president, and we have a president in, the, in Russia, although this is interesting. This may not turn out quite the way in which some imagine, because Vladimir Putin, he has a relationship to Iran, which is a little more textured. So we're going to have to see what happens here. My sense is that this is a, you know, it's like a Greek, it's like watching a Greek tragedy. In a Greek tragedy, you see all the family players lined up, and you can see the passions at work. You can see the illusions at work. You know, when President Trump, and I'm not a Trump basher, but I'm not blind, when, when President Trump was running for the office, I at some point became a little bit concerned. So I spent my morning devotional hour reading, rereading the Greek tragedies. Because what are the Greek tragedies about? The Greek tragedies are all about hubris. They're all about hubris yeah. and what it does to families. And I have had a feeling that we're watching a, a tragedy unfolding. So... But just briefly, my sense is that Iran, if we look at the response in Iran after 9-11, the streets were full of Iranians with American flags. There was no Iranian involved in that. Iran also was an empire. It's never been colonized. Iran has a distinctive form of Islam. Uh, The Ayatollah in Iran the chief religious leader, has said publicly on a number of occasions, there cannot be a nuclear weapon. It is against Islam. Now, will he live that out? I don't know. But he said it. So my sense is that Iran and Turkey, Turkey's an entirely different case, but it also was never colonized. And I've spent a lot of time there. Iran and Turkey are the best things the West has going for us. Not the worst. They're the best. And we have done it exactly the wrong way. We have done everything to play the fear card and to use them around cheap politics instead of making use of art and culture and letters and what have you to strike relationships and to build relationships so that, in fact, we have some knowledge about how to move ahead here. And I hope we turn around. Yeah, thank you so much. I want to, so we we are mindful, and we do it from a distance, but we are mindful of the people who have suffered loss in this recent uh, series of events. And, of course, as I was saying, in our communities particularly, we think of those people who have lost their lives and their families, uh, have fa- had family members die in this in this incident. And so... We seek to to be prayerful about that on their behalf, to uh, to ask ourselves what it means to live in in the community where people are experiencing such grief and sorrow, and we we hope that uh, we can come together even through some of these uh, tragic and difficult circumstances. We're very grateful to you, David, for granting us this time. We're mm-hmm. hopeful that uh, the ways in which you have already, I realized. Uh, as I read that quote from your friend who was the imam, 
I realized because I think the first time I encountered that was a few years ago, and in my own uh, work as a pastor and in the community, it was I was saying to my wife uh, this morning that um, it had a lot more. In, I knew it had influence on me, but it had more influence on me than than I had known. And that uh, again, without speaking ill of of particular people, uh, to some degree, I see that we have we've walked away from that doubt and fear, and that's our hope that we will continue to do that. And you are, even though we've met you a number of different times and it's in kind of varied times like this, you ha- you are a big part of that for us. You mm-hmm. have encouraged us in a way of conversation and understanding and theological understanding and cultural understanding that uh, gives us great, great hope. We are really, really grateful. Uh, I thought um, at the end, this is a bit presumptuous on <coughs> you, and sorry to spring this on you. Go ahead. Can I just give you one little coda? Yeah. From... You know, the, I'm, I've doing some work recently on the Orthodox tradition's understanding of the meaning of the church. So, this belongs to you as well. Hmm. The church does not exist unless there is the stranger and the person that you cannot understand, hmm. that you do not understand and maybe never will understand. There is the ecclesia. There is the full gathering of God's kingdom. Thank you. I was going to ask you as last thing, kind of saying presumptuous, <laughs> that you would express your hope for us, but you just have. Mm-hmm. You just have. Bless you in what you do. Thank you so much. And we will continue to do it. We hope to continue to dialogue with you and uh, with others who are who are on this walk. Uh, thank you for your time and for um, granting us the space here at uh, All Saints of North America Orthodox Monastery. Great place to be. Um, <laughs> again, for those who are listening, uh, go to davidgoa.ca. Uh, I'm, I'm saying that not to promote you, uh, though I'm pleased to do that. <laughs> I'm saying that because uh, it will have a positive impact on people to... Um, to seek uh, to listen to some of the ways in which you speak, in which you share and speak of your own faith, um, your own spiritual understanding. So thank you to everybody here. I think... Uh, oh, Ken. Ken has a gift. I have a gift for, for you, our David. distinguished guest. Yes, as a, as a thank you, uh, you get a large bottle of, the, of, of what we've been enjoying. Oh, you're kidding. So you get to take that <laughs> home with you. I hope, I hope you don't have carry-on. Because otherwise you're going to have to drink it in the airport. But, uh, <laughs> I'm going to have to drink it all in the airport. Uh, <laughs> this will give them twenty five bucks and put it in a bag. I <laughs> will. I will enter the odd society. <laughs> but actually, here at the monastery, I'm sure I have some self sacrificing monks who will be share. Happy. That's even better that for us. Better. Oh, yes. They'll be better. happy to thank share you. in the spirit. Well, Absolutely. thank you very much for your thank time, you. for your hospitality here. Uh, for taking the time to meet with us and we look forward to speaking to you again in the future and thanks to everyone for listening and you'll hear from us again soon thank you so much yeah i want to echo ken's sentiments to say thank you to those who are listening Uh, we hope that you can listen and maybe even re-listen to some of these episodes there i know there's a lot in here but we're grateful for you for taking the time to listen as well thanks and thanks to ricky t our fearless producer